Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 107, recorded December 30th in the final days of 2012. Right. Episode 48 of our 90s series, and today we're covering Deep Space Nine. Yes. Going back on the promenade to see the goings-on. Right. So these three issues, 10, 11, 12, wrap up Malibu's first year of producing Star Trek comics. And I still think they're kind of trying to figure out what kind of stories they're going to tell. Right. And what is their target audience? Young, the old, everybody? They're really experimenting around a bit. Yeah, so last time we did a Deep Space Nine episode, we had one issue that was three like little mini-issues in in one issue, or three mini-stories. This time, we have three full issues, and they're all standalone one-offs, so there's absolutely no no story arcs that, that cross over at all. Right. And I'm with you. I'm, I wonder, you know, is this supposed to be aimed at adult fans, little kid fans? Um, <laughs> Teenager <I> fans? <laughs> I guess that would be somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's six-year-olds, but uh, it's definitely Probably not. A, maybe a young adult market. I think so. Which around, is, the, around the Jake and Nog age range. <laughs> yeah, definitely some of these are aimed at the Jake and Odd. No. <laughs> yeah, issue 12 in particular. But uh, well, we'll talk about it later. I just... Uh, they're not bad, but they don't seem to be taking themselves quite as seriously as maybe DC did, does for the for their stuff. Right. And to be fair, issue 11 is obviously played for uh, humor. And it's light. It's light and airy. Well, 11 and 12 both are, are pretty humorous. Uh, yes. But look, so that means that 10 must be hard, gripping sci-fi action. So I guess we should just jump into it and see if that's true. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, so I get, uh, I get the honors of this one. This is issue number 10. The title is Descendants. Published date is June 1994. The writer is Dan Mishkin. Penciler is Leonard Kirk. Inker is Terry Pallet. Letterer is Patrick Owsley. Editor is Mark Panacea. The cover shows a fit and perfect-looking bald couple in the center. They are both dressed in loose-fitting white clothes. The female has a Bajoran-looking nose ridges, but the male does not. One looks human, maybe? Hmm, the guy? Major Hira is kneeling on the Bajoran symbol in front of the bald couple as if they may be deities. Odo is to their right and looking concerned. DS9 and the opening wormhole is to their left. The story opens with Sisko making a station log entry. He tells of catching himself being drawn into the routine of running the station, which is dangerous. 
DS9 is a gateway to another quadrant of the galaxy where unknown wonders and dangers exist. Nothing here is ever routine. Suddenly the wormhole opens and from it issues not a ship but two small objects that are humanoid in shape, unprotected in the unforgiving void. Despite Major Kira's hesitation, Sisko orders an airlock open to allow the two humanoids to enter the station. As a free port, he will not turn away the unknown. Sisko and Dr. Bashir meet the impressive pair. They're all clad in white and looking a good foot or two taller than even Sisko. Sisko introduces himself and the doctor, but when he asks who they are, the male merely states he cannot answer his question. At first, Bashir offers amnesia induced by exposure to open space as a likely explanation. He moves to a diagnostic scan, but is stopped suddenly by an angry-looking Bajoran who says the newcomers to the station are the prophets, and as such cannot be defiled by a tricorder scan. Sisko is not happy with this civilian stopping them from rendering aid, but a second Bajoran approaches him saying a similar thing. A crowd begins to form around the newcomers. The constable arrives to help with crowd control. Just when the crowd starts to turn ugly, the female newcomer speaks in a strange voice and tells the crowd to essentially take a chill pill because Sisko and company means them no harm. After the crowd settles back, the female newcomer grabs her head in fatigue and the male asks for them to be shown to their quarters. As they make their way to rest, the crowd follows them like children following a favorite parent. As they pass through the promenade, an oblong object glows in an adjoining room. In ops, Sisko is gathering opinions as to next steps. Odo is suspicious of how they were able to get aboard the station and avoid getting scanned, but looking as if they were cooperative. Sisko asks him to keep an eye on them as well as he can given the circumstances. Dr. Bashir offers that they could be members of a race called the Preservers. They are purported to be the progenitor race of all the humanoid races of the galaxy. The Enterprise reportedly discovered an ancient hologram left by one of the Preservers, but that hologram showed that person being similar to their guests but not as large and robust. The idea that they could be an offshoot of the Preserver race that branched off on their own when they discovered the wormhole long ago was offered. This all led to the theory that they could be both Preservers and the Prophets. Later on the promenade, Odo was speaking to Quark while observing the newcomers playing the role of prophets to all that come to them. Just as Odo says, he has all the proof he needs to say they are not what they say they are, an explosion takes place on one end of the promenade. The Bajorans scream out to protect the prophets and push them out of the room where Odo runs towards the source of the blast. The newcomers show up in ops, warning Sisko that danger is afoot. With a worried look on their face, the two baldies tell Sisko their memories are still murky, but they can tell that the threat they all face are their opposites in every way. Kira tells Sisko of legends that say long ago the prophets fought foes who represented pure evil, death, and destruction. 
the newcomers ask Cisco if they could have the freedom to look over the station and see if they can find specific evidence of the evil they felt earlier. Cisco asks Kira's opinion, and they both grant their request. Later, a group of Bajorans are angry with what they see as Cisco and the humans' interference with the prophets. They say they will not allow it to go on. In the hallway outside the room, the newcomers hear the ferment brewing and smile knowingly to one another. Luckily, this new development has not gone unnoticed. A black cat watches the newcomers leave and turns into Odo. He moves on and enters a room where the glowing oblong-shaped rock is being examined by Dr. Bashir. He says his tricorder is picking up life readings of an entirely unknown type. He also says this object glows when the prophets are near to it. Odo's suspicious that one of these glowing rocks were in the promenade where the newcomers were close and the explosion took place. Odo moves fast and grabs the glowing oblong rock. He places it in an examination table and tells Bashir to erect a medical isolation field around it. Full power! Bashir does so as the rock exploded into a bright flash of light. A winged serpent emerged from the rock and is now recognized as the creature's egg casing. They inform Sisko and Ops as the newcomers enter. The male has another one of these creatures with its tail entwined around his upper arm. The newcomers say there is nothing to fear from the creatures since it responds to their commands. Sisko says they need to contain the creatures until they are sure of where they came from and what their capabilities are. Suddenly the station is rocked. Kira reports four more explosions occurred around the station. Odo enters with an armed security officer and states that Kira will find that these explosions occurred around the station in locations recently visited by the newcomers. The newcomers look at each other and then sick the winged serpent on Dax. Odo orders his man to fire on the two newcomers, which exposes them for what they are. Two larger versions of the green winged serpent. As they attack the occupants of Ops, they conveniently explain that they are the adults who have just given birth to six fine young offspring. The station makes a fine nesting ground for them, and the occupants of the station a fine feeding stock for their young. Equally conveniently, Odo explains how he spotted them as shapeshifters when they had such a difficult time making use of their humanoid hands earlier on the promenade. As the battle rages, Odo gets to O'Brien and helps him to beam every life sign in Ops out to space without a comm badge. He does so. The parents and the children of the winged space serpents are all transported into space. They use the station's phasers to force them back into the wormhole. Sisko orders Dax to prepare a boy to transport the last serpent still in the medical force field through the wormhole too. He wants to rid the station of the last reason for them to come back. Sisko thanks Odo for reminding him that not everything is what it appears to be. The end. So you didn't mention the uh, little false moment there where Odo says, beam everything off the bridge. And then there's like, everybody's gasping. And then he's like, that doesn't have a comm badge. Oh, 
okay. I, I thought that I thought that was a little artificial tension that uh, didn't yeah. quite work. Yeah, well, it didn't quite work into my synopsis either. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's lots of nuances you don't always have the time for. So, Donnie, did you see them actually being winged serpents? No, that's definitely something I didn't see coming. No, no. When I, when I started reading this, that was that was probably the last thing I thought was going to happen. <laughs> uh, winged serpents, winged monkeys, you know, whatever. I was not <laughs> expecting that. Yeah. Yeah, th- th- this story had two big, uh, I don't want to say flaws, because maybe it's just me that I didn't quite uh, catch it. Only two? But uh, two main ones. Okay. Uh, first one being... Uh, where are these eggs coming from? Because it seems yep. like they're being guarded fairly well. Um, are they pulling them out of their bodies to lay the eggs in various places, or are they already there and they're just triggering the the hatching? Well, I think that was – well, okay, so you want to go on to your second one or you want to discuss that one? Uh, well, my second one was I, I didn't quite buy how Odo was able to – deduce that they didn't know how to use their hands. I mean, it shows one of the aliens holding a little baby's arm and he gives him a little blessing and then Odo's like, aha, he doesn't know how to hold his use his arm and I or his fingers and I didn't quite get that because you're going to be gentle with a baby and he's doing a blessing and it looks like he's doing a good job with his hand so I did not catch what, what Odo saw. Well, exactly. So at that point, I don't think Odo actually said at that time, oh, he's doing something weird with his fingers. I didn't think there was enough detail shown for anything to look odd or strange. And then Odo just says, oh, I know what's wrong. And it's like, okay. Well, and it shows Odo looking at his own hand after the panel before showed the the male holding the little baby's arm, giving the blessing. Right. So within those two panels... We we're supposed to, I mean, going back and rereading it between those two panels, you're supposed to know that Odo at that point has figured out the hand thing, which I still don't get. Well, I, I the only thing I knew is that Odo figured something out. Whether it had anything to do with hands or anything else, I was clueless. Mm-hmm. You know, I I didn't make that connection. You did. All I know is that Odo spotted something. Another thing, which was uh, an interesting clue, as Odo was running towards the blast, he said, I'm not alone. Uh, And by the way, I I didn't get this into the synopsis. I just had to move along. But the other thing you saw, uh, like the sound, you know, uh, written out in words, scree, or something like that. So there were some more clues that Mm -hmm. uh, he did see something, or at least heard something, in the smoke of the uh, explosion. Right. Okay, so that's the second one. Getting back to the first one, I think that the way the eggs just popped up was total BS, especially the first time you saw it. So they just got onto the station, these newcomers. They got people all around them. Mm -hmm. And then finally they're moving through the station to get to their quarters, quote, quarters. And then you see as they're going through the promenade, like you see one panel and that's it where like off maybe around the corner in a different room or something maybe that that their doorway is open I wasn't wasn't or it was around a corner or something like that you saw the first glowing orb or you know egg shaped whatever rock right and it's like you didn't know what that was and that's fine they're just laying things out for you but how the heck 
did they get it out of their bodies and placed there? Because, again, because you, you gave two possibilities. Either they're spouting them out, you know, squeezing them out mm. as they're going, <laughs> or they were positioned there originally. And I got it. It's got to be the first one because they weren't. I mean, how did they get on the station prior to them coming through the wormhole? Right. Well, the only thing I could think of is maybe they had seeded the space station years before, back when it was under oh. Cardassian control, and oh. and now they're here just triggering well. that. But that's that's me yeah. trying to make sense out of something that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah exactly. It doesn't make sense, and I, I don't like that about it. Anyway, any way you look at it, I don't think those things could have been sitting around that long without anybody noticing them. Right. But. Yeah, no, uh, like I said, you're probably, I mean, you, I'm not going to argue with you because you're right. I mean, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> oh, it, it, and I'm not, I'm, yeah, this is not an argument. I, I, at least I, I didn't think it was an argument. <laughs> no, but, no, no, no. I'm just like, I, I thought, well, I'll try to defend it some more, but then I'm like, <laughs> it's not worth defending because it doesn't make sense. No. There's, I don't think there's any way you can spin that so that it would make any exactly. more sense than what it, we've already said. That first part. No sense whatsoever. Now, later when they were in their quarters or something, and definitely when they were given free run of the station, right? sure, then they could have been squeezing them out all over the place. <laughs> but that first one, there's like no physical way. There were too many people around them. Right. Anyway. And that first explosion, and, and like you said, you do hear the scree, but you don't actually see the winged animal. Right. Um, where did it go? Is it the uh, one that's later on his shoulder when he shows up on the on in ops, the, the I, male god? Probably, although they don't explain it. I mean, yeah. it, it seems like there's only two that are out so far, and the and the second one, if it truly was the second one, it seems like it's the second one. It, that's in the containment field. Right. So. And, and and talking about keeping track of these things, so late, you know, fast forward to near the end of the book, we have in ops one creature around the upper arm of the male, and then you've got the two parents. And then when they finally decide that the jig's up and that Odo's got him dead to rights, then they go into attack mode. There's still only three of them. And then, you know, after the after the four explosions, I think it was four, that took place around the base station, magic, magic, those four descend on ops, like almost immediately, you know. Right. You know, uh, you know before you know it, they, they've made their way to ops, magically, and they're taking part in the attack of everybody, you know, in ops. So, All right, so... That kind of bugged me. In, in ops, I see only three. Okay. Oh, no, that last panel on page 21, there is, there is more than three, you're right. There is. And, and the thing is, it was weird how they all got there. Right. Yeah, because so one should still be in the little force field, right, that exactly. the headed in. Exactly. And and they do talk about that at least. At least they gave a nod to that. They're gonna send. You're gonna, they're gonna grab the thing and put it in a probe and send it through the wormhole. Right. So at least they're 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 keeping track of that one. Right. But then the other thing that you've just got to go with is the idea that magically these four others were able to get to ops almost immediately. Right. To take part then, in the, the attack. Yeah. And then once they're out in space, you shoot them into the uh, <laughs> wormhole. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, so I didn't I didn't mention this in the synopsis, but they gave the explanation that because hand phasers could not could not hurt them apparently, but they are able to expose them. It's because they're used to the the nasty open space, so they're really tough. Right. So therefore, phasers aren't going to hurt them, even though they shot with the station's phasers full power. <laughs> you know, Cisco says full power. It's like 
Come on. I don't care how tough they are. <laughs> if you hit if you hit the creatures this size with full phasers, they're gonna be they're gonna be atoms. They're gonna be uh, toast. Exactly. That's what I'd expect. Uh, I agree with you on that one. Yeah. So anyways, not not a perfect issue. Mm, no. It started off good. I loved the idea that these two godlike beings just float into into the station. I actually liked that. Yes. I liked how they were depicted as, you know, larger than life. Yep. Uh, I liked all the speculation. Who could these be? <coughs> Are they prophets? Are they, you know, the preservers or, or whatever? I loved all that. And then, then they just kind of took it in a different direction and it just opened up too many questions that I didn't think got answered. Right. Right. Yeah. So, big build up. And and when you finally see the big reveal, uh, disappointing. <laughs> so anyway, so it was re- reminding me a bit of the uh, in the first seasons of Doctor Who, uh, the reboot, the 2005 reboot. Oh, the the, the bad Doctor wolf one? or whatever. Right, right. You know, build up, build up, build up, and then when you finally find out what the whole season's been building up is to, it's like that's it. <laughs> well, I think we've mentioned it before on this show that uh, the new rebooted Doctor Who, I think, has that problem a lot. It, it it promises something all season long, and then the the finale always kind of leaves you with a yeah. big question mark over your head. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely in the Davies. What was his first name? I don't remember his first Russell, name. Russell. Russell T. Davies. Davies. Russell T. Davies. There you go. Especially yep. in the Russell T. Davies years. Right. Which he also now did that, Torchwood, and Torchwood right. I thought was really bad at that, too. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I think things are better with Moffat uh, and his uh, scripts. The Big Bang. Yeah. Well, they're not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> But some of the best ones, I think some of the best ones uh, Moffat uh, wrote. Oh yeah. Like I, I, I love the. Uh, I know this. I know it's a Star Trek comic book <laughs> review, but uh, I, I love the. Uh, what, what the uh, the angels, the the Weeping statues, angels, right. weeping angels. There you go. Yeah. The those were. Episode. I always like those guys. The first one was great. I, I thought it was like a like a movie. Right. Like, like the Ring, or like one of those kind of horror movie kind of things. Mm. Only it was really good, as opposed to the Ring, which really was not a good movie at all. <laughs> but um, anyway. Yeah. Well, what's funny about that issue, that episode, uh, Blink. Was, Blink. There you go. Yeah, second season episode. Right. Uh, what was so great about that is that was originally written as a short story for the Ninth Doctor in uh, an annual. Oh. So it was actually a published Ninth Doctor story uh, mm-hmm. with the you know what was her name Susan Sparrow whatever Sarah Sparrow something okay. Sparrow. Uh, but then I guess they liked it enough that they converted Reworked it to a, a, a Tenth Doctor episode, and it's it's I think one of my favorites of, yeah. of all the rebooted uh, Doctor Who stuff. I agree. Very good. Good stuff. I'm really looking forward to reviewing the Doctor Who Star Trek crossover stuff. Uh, we yes, need, we need to get around to that pretty soon. I, I do like those issues, but just a, a quick statement is it's so far they're um, they're good, but there are things going on in it that I'm not as crazy about. But uh, I'm very much in the the early part of that rather long series. Right. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you're a big Doctor Who fan uh, and a Star Trek fan, let us know. I mean, maybe we can. 
work out some special guest star stuff. We're always we're always looking to potentially uh, share the, the the comments and stuff. I always enjoy talking to other people about it. So huh, let us know idea. if you're interested. Sure. Great All right, let, let's jump back to uh, issue number ten here, though. Uh, my last comment has nothing to do with the the book. So do you have any last comments on ten? I have one last comment on 10. I thought it was odd at the beginning when they're trying to figure out what was going on with these people that appeared like they maybe could have been the prophets. Mm-hmm. I thought it odd they did not ask Kira more about it. Cisco did not really talk to Kira that much about it. I mean, if anybody should probably have an opinion about something having to do uh, with the prophets, I would think it would be Kira because she is a, a very religious, plugged-in person. Right. And I thought the same thing, but I, I thought it was – but I was thinking more Cisco. Cisco is the only person that's actually spoken to the prophets. He's right. the emissary of the prophets, yep. you know, whether it's a, a title he wants or not. He is right. the only mortal that's that's actually been in communication with him. Yes. You know, he, he could have said right then and there, these don't seem to be the prophets that I know or that right. I've talked to, but – they just kind of gloss over that. No, I agree with you. It did seem weird. Yep. That's it. All right. So my last thing was that in the letters column of this issue, um, oh. they talk about you know Malibu working on Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. and, and there's a, a mini series they're writing, Heart and Souls, which is coming out soon as, as far as the publication of issue number 10. But then they also mention that they're working hard on a Star Trek Voyager comic book that would be coming out in about a year. Oh. Did it so, ever come out? No. Hmm. No, Malibu never released a Star Trek Voyager comic book. So that got me wondering. I'm like, that. wonder whatever happened to that. Because hmm. I always thought that the licensing for Star Trek all went to Marvel right? Uh, around the time that Generations came out and Star Trek Voyager started, but I guess it didn't. I guess Voyager was actually out for a while before it all moved over to Marvel. So I don't have the answer, but it just got me wondering, wonder, wonder what happened, what happened to, that. to that. Yeah, yeah. And in the DC letter columns that we've been doing, they keep talking about a uh, a Sulu miniseries they're working on. If ah. you read, if you read the the letter columns there, they're always talking about we're hard at work on this Sulu miniseries. Just keep looking for it and. I know for a fact that that's never going to come out. Hmm. So, so that's at least two stories that I know somebody was working on, or at least said they were working on before yeah. all the licensing went back to Marvel. Yeah. Well, the best laid plans, you know. Right. Right. It's amazing how many movies do not get made, <laughs> TV shows that do not get made that are worked on. So I guess the right. same for uh, comic books. Yeah. Just makes you wonder how how far along did they go? So. Right wonder if there is some pages out there from both the miniseries for Sulu and uh, a Voyager Malibu series. Mm. Interesting. Yes. At the very least, I'm, I'm sure they have the uh, the writing, the script, if you call right. it a script. Right. Yeah. Maybe I'll try to do some research and try to track some of that down if it, if it exists. Cool. All right. So uh, next issue is issue 11. came out June of 1994. This one is entitled A Short Fuse. A few a few different credits. The writer this time is Charles Martel. The inker this time is Bruce McCorkendale. And the color designer is Moose Bauman. And then the other credits are the same as last issue. 
The cover depicts Morn in a wide array of different alien species exiting Quark's bar in a stampede. Quark himself is being bowled off his feet with drinks and gold-pressed latinum flying out of his hands and into the air. And I don't think there's a caption or anything. Let me just double-check. Nope, that's it. So, just the, the stampede out of Quark's. So the story starts off with the Cardassians um, have taken over Deep Space Nine, and they're holding the main cast at rifle point there on the promenade. Sisko defiantly tells the Cardassian leader that the Federation will send someone to stop them uh, sometime in the future. Quark is cowering and begging that someone should do something now. That is when Jake and Nog take action, and they swing down on ropes, firing phasers at the Cardassians, thereby saving the day. We now flash to the second floor of the promenade, where Jake and Nog have just finished their exciting tale about how they would save the day. So it's just been a story this whole time. Close one. Before they can launch into the next adventure of Jake and Nog, they notice Odo walking around the promenade. The constable informs them that he is searching for a bomb. He even stretches out his neck so that he can see over the heads of all the shoppers there on the promenade. The young boys take it upon themselves to help search for the explosive. The boys arrive at Quark's bar, where Kira and Sisko are asking Quark to close up shop for the investigation. Quark refuses, and then he loudly says, There's no bomb! His voice carries over, and everyone hears this, and they start to panic. All the barflies leave the bar in a mass exodus. Once everybody is out, Quark is complaining that he's going to now be bankrupt due to lack of business, but Cisco is working on splitting up the main cast into different areas of the station to search. Jake and Nog volunteer, but Cisco refuses to allow them. He orders Jake to return to his quarters and that he better not see him again today. Nog and Jake leave the bar, but Jake heads towards the air duct, saying that if he's up there, he can still search, and his dad will never see him. Nog is happy to see that the Ferengi lifestyle has rubbed off on his friend. In the ducks, Jake ponders how things might be different if his mother had lived. Would his dad be less strict? Nog tells Jake that Ferengi males do not grow up with their mothers, and he admits that he does miss her. The two boys exit the air duct in the cargo bay. They are startled by Bashir, and they run away from him. He tries to chase the boys, but he trips and falls. When Sisko calls Bashir asking for a status report, he does not report that he saw the two boys. I guess he chalks it up to boys being boys. In another cargo bay, the boys are rummaging through some boxes. Nog is sliding a few things into his pocket when Jake is not looking. Then they find the suitcase-sized bomb that Odo had described. They carefully pick it up and make their way to Ops. Once there, they inform Dax that they have found it. She quickly transports it away from the station, and it is engulfed by the wormhole before it can detonate. The boys self-congratulate themselves with a high five. Sisko then calls Dax and informs her that they have need to celebrate. 
and for all of the crew to meet up in ops. News must be traveling fast. As the crew start to arrive, they wonder why Nog and Jake are in ops. Sisko then tells everyone that Odo found and defused the bomb. Shocked and confused, the boys learn that what they found was a subspaced field analyzer that O'Brien had on back order for months. O'Brien starts after the kids, and the two boys run out as fast as they can. The end. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah. Wacky. Wacky slapstick comedy at the end. <laughs> yeah, this is the second time that... Uh, the boys in the comic book have caused a, you know, a ruckus. In the in the first two issues, they were in a cargo bay where they released that bacteria stuff that, that yes. started to engulf the that whole fungus. Sh- yeah. And so here they are again, trying to do their Hardy Boys impression, impression and uh, it doesn't quite work as they expected. No, it doesn't. But it is, uh, it's a nice little boys fantasy that they save all the adults what they had at first and then what they wanted to make in reality in this issue. So it's it's kind of fun, but it's also kind of, yeah. <laughs> it, it isn't the storyline that I was expecting or looking for, but eh, it's I, cute. Uh, overall, I, I actually like this one. Good. Um, well, of all of them, I think I definitely like this one the best of the three. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you on that one. Yeah. yeah, I, you know, it was a light issue, right? And it, you know, the next issue is even lighter, which, which, <laughs> or, yeah. uh, and this one didn't have you know huge gaping plot holes like the first one did. Yeah. So. Well, I was kind of surprised how Odo was so open with Jake and Nog right off the bat. Right. He was like, "Oh yeah, I'm looking around for a bomb." Oh, okay. <laughs> great well what's funny is that he describes the bomb and then there's a panel that actually shows it which which yes. I, always, I was a little weird I mean is this what they're imagining that it looks like or that's, yeah that's what I thought it was it's yeah. what they're what they're what you know from his description that's what they were envisioning it and it's funny that they both envision the exact same thing right. which ends up being a subspace analyzer hmm. yeah so they both imagined a subspace analyzer <laughs> Because what they imagine looks exactly like what they find there on page uh, at the end scene. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was odd, and I also thought it was a little odd that uh, while Odo is telling him all this, which is very un-Odo-like, yeah, he's also stretching his neck out like uh, you know Stretch Armstrong or Plastic Man or somebody. Or Mr. Fantastic. Mr. Fantastic works. Or the Elongated Man. Yes. Know. Many examples. Of stretchy uh, superheroes. Right. But uh, I never remember seeing Odo doing that kind of stuff. Just no. walking around the promenade with a big giraffe neck. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether it was uh, because they thought it would uh, make it look too hokey or whether it was budget. It's kind of like how Data almost never turned into the $6 million man. <laughs> you know, he never ran towards something and the camera never slowed down. He hardly he hardly ever picked up uh, cars with one hand. He just didn't do that kind of stuff. Which, which I was I, glad they never did. Uh, me too, because I thought that was more, it made him more believable. I mean, you, could, knew he could do, you knew he could do all these things, but he didn't have to go flaunting it. Right. Yeah, there, there was a, a novel series called Genesis Wave by yeah. John Van Hort. 
forgot his name. Yeah. Anyways, in that series, Data does the six million dollar man impression. There's a part <laughs> where he's having to run through a crowd of people and he's literally leaping over their heads like, you know, uh the way it's written, it's like, you know, each time he lands he bounces up over the next, you know, ten, fifteen people. And and I got at first I didn't like it. I was like, this what is going on? And then I thought about it. Oh, yes, technically he could do that, but right. I don't want to see him doing that. I don't want to. I mean, I always want to picture him. You know, yes, he's stronger. Yes, you know, yes, he has these other abilities, but I don't want necessarily want to see him doing it. Like, like, like you know, Inspector Gadget. Right. <laughs> exactly. Or yeah, like so, Captain America. Like whatever. Captain America doesn't do. That kind of stuff. Yeah, sure he does. It depends. Yeah, yeah I mean, in that first zombie one, where Cap- uh, where Captain he ends America? up Captain America, where he bites. Uh, oh, oh, oh! You're Spidey? talking about Marvel zombies. Okay. Marvel zombies. I mean, Spidey's like up in the air doing his web slinging thing, and Cap jumps up and uh, off a building, I hope, but jumps up and is able to grab him and bite him. <laughs> And technically, he's not Captain America. He's Colonel America in that continuity. Oh, oh, really? I never. Wow, that's cool. He's, I, I that's falling, how he, falling like, off the comic book uh, bandwagon when I became an adult was. Uh, I missed some cool stuff. Well, no, that's just how you're supposed to know that 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 was not our Earth. That was a different Earth. Oh, there, there, if you read it, there's okay. slight little things that that don't add up. You know, he, he's not called Captain America. He was called. Colonel America. Oh, I missed I think that. that was that was supposed to be their way of telling the audience that this is not the Peter Parker and Steve Rogers right. that you know and love. Uh, okay, this is a different dimension. There you go. Right. Yeah. You know, like the Mirror Universe. I think a couple people had goatees for no reason. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, Odo, stretchy, stretchy neck. Yes, I know he can do it, but I just don't see him doing that. Right. Looking for um, and since you're mentioning it, something that was a little bit of annoying for me as I was reading the comic is to, I guess, to, to save space or something, one of the panels that shows the stretch neck on Odo, mm-hmm. actually when he's bringing his neck back down to normal, I think, right. um, it, it's it's drawn very tall because they have to accommodate his long his long neck, and so it's a it's it's a portrait style uh, of panel that they have turned 90 degrees into a landscape layout. So basically it's it's more or less a 90 degree angle, uh, including the, uh, the the dialogue bubbles from Odo. So as I'm reading this thing because I'm reading it on a, on a computer, I needed to crank my neck to the left right. which was a little, uh, a little annoying. I could see why it would have been less of an issue with a real comic book. You just turn the comic book, but yeah, but it, it, it's just one panel. So usually oh, know, when they do that kind of stuff, it's the whole page, you know. Right. Well, last issue or last time we did a Deep Space Nine, there was that one splash page that was where you had to turn the whole book. Yep. Uh, it's kind of weird to do just one panel like they did here. Yes. It's the first time I remember seeing that. Yeah. Although it might have come up before. This is the first time I remember seeing it. No, right. I, I'm with you. It, it was it was an odd yeah thing. Yeah. So panel layouts, you know, I, I would you know thinking looking at this and look at this looking at this and thinking about this, it's like wow, you really do have to plan this stuff out, <laughs> right? Because uh, you know all these different panels 
could have different needs depending upon where people are standing or if they're doing a Mr. Fantastic impression or things like that. <laughs> so you got to work all this stuff out, but it's almost like they did it this way just because that's the way they had to to fit the uh, fit everything into the one page. Right. Well, this was made during the 90s, and that there for a while that was kind of a fad. Oh, was it? To, okay. But again, it was usually a whole page. Yeah. Or the even the cover. Sometimes covers would do that. So the cover of the mm-hmm. book would be, uh, you know, landscape. landscape instead of portrait. Huh. Interesting. Uh, I don't see it that much anymore. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I think kind of went away, like a lot of the stuff from the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yep, I agree with you. What else you got? I thought it was odd that no one seemed to be aware that it was Nog that basically indirectly triggered Quark, <laughs> triggering the uh, the panic in the in Quark's bar. That it was yeah, so, Quark that triggered it. Well, Nog. So it was Nog asking Quark about the bomb. If you heard about the bomb, that finally sets. Uh, quark off and saying there is no bomb and then that that's triggers the stampede really hold on i didn't I thought catch that, that was interesting yes so again the oh now you're right you know what i didn't even catch that yeah well the tw- the twin gilligans of nog and jake <laughs> <laughs> are just just gumming up the works all over the place in this issue oh that's funny but but nobody seems to be aware of that and so everybody's like going along. Okay, fine. Yeah. You know, Cisco's not aware of it. All right. But it's like, boys, leave. You know, I, w- I would have been. You guys got to go. But get out of here now. <laughs> I, I I thought it was a little odd. The uh, you know, his reasoning. You know, Cisco, the way he worded it. Right. I don't want to see you guys again today. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> if we're in the air duct, my dad won't see us. That's right. That's very Ferengi-like of you. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, well, and so so why does Jake and Nog think they know the station better than anyone? Because they play around a lot and stuff? Or... Yeah. Okay. Same way Newt know, knew the station and aliens that all, no. all adults <laughs> Now, Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, definitely Odo was around the station a heck of a lot longer from than Jake. True. And uh, Odo can get to be a lot smaller than Jake. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> okay. His logic is flawed. I think so. I liked the little flashback to the Borg cube destroying the Saratoga. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was actually kind of cool. And what he was thinking is that, you know, I wonder if my dad would be a different person if my mom was still alive. Right. I thought that was actually, you know, pretty cool. Little yeah. moment. Yep. I didn't really buy Nog, though. I mean, yeah. Oh, you mean the part where where Jake says, was saying, trying to push him on, do you ever miss your mom? Do you ever yeah. miss your mom? Do you ever miss your mom? Do you ever miss your mom? Okay, okay. Okay already. I miss her. <laughs> well, only because we, we know that, you know, Moogie plays such a big part in Nog, or in, a, in Quark's and... Rom's life. Good point. That Good point. It, it, I was like, did this come out before those episodes? Because I think they even talk about how they grew up with with Moogie. Yeah, I thought so too. So, thought that was a little. Or weird. did they see her more when they were adults? 
I don't know. I don't know. I thought that they... I, I, I had I the impression know. they had a normal... Well, <laughs> quote, air quotes, uh, normal kind of a scenario with their with Moogie. But, I did, too. I did, too. Yeah. yeah. And then, in fact, she kind of babied uh, Rom, and that's that's why Cork thinks Rom's the way he is. <laughs> yeah. But how would she be able to baby them if they didn't, never see her? Yeah. True. I agree. Anyway, well, what else you got? That was my last thing, note. The thing I like most about this issue are all the aliens. I think they, they did a nice job. I enjoyed it anyway. Of mm-hmm. the aliens on the cover. Right. And I also think just before the big stampede on page seven, mm-hmm. they showed, uh, what was it, eight eight different little close-up panels of different uh, aliens. Right. Uh, I, I, I liked it. I, I, I liked the aliens. Yep. No, they were pretty cool. I think they were very nice drawings. Yeah. No. Although, although that one guy that kind of looks like he might be a little bit like a monkey face, he kind of looked like somewhere between a monkey and Odo. A monkey. On, on page seven, the second panel from the bottom. So there's like a human-looking guy. Yeah. Like, kind of like in the middle right, and then beside oh, him. Oh yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. No, I guess he has kind of purpley hair. And it's exactly, and and it's all combed back like Odo. Yeah, no, and then it. and then, but definitely his face and or his mouth and nose is definitely uh, monkey like. Right, no, that's pretty cool. And then, <laughs> and then, did you already mention the guy with the eight eyeballs? Yeah, I did. Oh, I did not mention him, but I think he's pretty cool looking. No nose, no mouth, just eight eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, no, that was cool. Yeah. No, nah, yeah, and the cover had a lot of cool aliens on it too, so I agree with you. Right. Spot. Yeah, I, I, yeah. The 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 insectoid kind of alien in the upper left hand portion, right, of the cover. I thought it was interesting how like half of his face was blue and the other half was like a purple. That was kind of weird, but uh, but 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 cool. I mean, a cool looking alien. Mm-hmm. Uh, insect alien. And then the open mouth bass looking alien. I thought he was uh, kind of cool looking too on the cover. Eh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, that is funny. I didn't. You, what, what, was it? Is it? Is that Billy Bass? Barty Bass? The you know the, the that cheapo 1995 thing they were selling like uh, like 15 years ago or so, where they had a he would sing. So you'd hang him up on your wall, put some batteries in him, and then every once in a while he would like sing and move a little bit. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't remember what his name was. Yeah, it was something like that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the, the the little bass-like alien on the cover reminds me of that. Right. Incredibly fine product. You you own one? Uh, I, I don't know how we came into possession of it, but yes, oh, we you did really have do. One. <laughs> we did have one. We did have. Oh, one. that's excellent. That's excellent. It didn't work very long, but yes. Despite the fine quality workmanship. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Nothing. All right. Let's jump into maybe the best one of the week. I'm looking forward to doing it. Okay. So this is uh, issue number 12. Title is Baby on Board. The published date, oddly enough, was July 1994, which I think was the same date as issue 11. But Yeah, whatever. it was. I guess that happens in the publishing circles once in a while. The dates just happen to be the same for two issues in a row. I don't know. 
So the writer was Charles Marshall, again, penciler Leonard Kirk, who I think does a pretty good job in general. Uh, Inker Bruce McCorkendale. Letterer is Patrick Owsley. Moose Bauman is color design. Violet Hughes interior color apparently had something to do with uh, colors in the inside of the comic. I assume that's a company. Editor is Mark Panacea. So, so basically, it, I, I think they invested money, uh, Malibu, in, in, in colors, you know, making sure they have vibrant, interesting colors in their comics. The cover shows Quark looking perplexed as the baby he is holding in front of him is grabbing his nose. Quark is clearly out of his element with this little baby. In a sort of diamond-shaped street sign icon are the words, Baby on Board. Get ready for a light and humorous story, I think. It's closing time at Quark's, and the proprietor himself is counting out the day's profits. As he walks around in the low light, he kicks something unexpectedly on the floor. It turns out to be a Bajoran baby inside of a basket, who starts crying at Quark's disturbance. It's too late in the evening to try to get the authorities, so Quark decides he's going to do his best to take care of this hard-to-please baby. By morning, Odo comes by to make sure Quark is ready for the Starfleet inspector that will be by later in the day. He notices that Quark looks terrible. He looks like he has gotten no sleep. Quark says it's due to the baby left in the bar last night and shoves the baby off on Odo. Odo tries to protest, but Quark will not take no for an answer. Odo attempts to keep the child from crying, but finds the only way he can do it is to turn his hands into brightly colored baby rattles. After an unspecified period of shaking his hands, I mean rattles, Odo has had enough and actually starts to revert to his liquid state. He is able to get the baby to Sisko, who has no choice but to take the baby. Sisko needs to meet the Starfleet inspector, and he can't be late, so he hands the baby off to Dax, who eventually hands the baby off to Kira, who in turn dumps the baby on O'Brien, who in turn dumps the baby on Keiko while she and Molly are sleeping. The note Miles has left for Keiko explaining the situation blows to the ground. Later when Keiko and Molly wake up, Keiko does not know how the baby got there. She takes the baby to Ops. Keiko unintentionally interrupts the Starfleet inspector, who is in the middle of criticizing Sisko's people for sloppiness and lack of attention to the inspection. One look at the baby in Keiko's arms, and the inspector, who is a grandfather himself, comes to the conclusion that the command staff have all been taking turns trying to care for the baby. That was the distraction that has been affecting them all. So he lightens up on the inspection and says, you know, I'll go easy on you, Cisco. Just as Major Kira points out that they still don't know who the mother is, Dr. Brashear, on cue, enters Ops with the mother who rushes to the baby. Apparently, she just happened to be affected by Therolean fever that first made her stupid enough to leave the baby at Quark's and then made her comatose for 24 hours. She is better now and is reunited with her sleeping and suddenly very well-behaved baby. The end. Whew, that was a quick one. It was a quick one, because there wasn't much there. (laughs) Now, every time they went to a new person, Mm -hmm. there was always a page or two of them trying to do something with the baby to entertain it. 
which you know, if you want to know what all they do, please read it. Uh, I'm I'm more than happy that you just kind of skimmed over it because it doesn't really add anything to the to the overall story. No, but I will say that Odo doing the rattle thing for a long period of time, um, the way they drew it. For me, anyway, I think I think they were successful in in bringing a smile to my face because the look on Odo's face as he continues to shake the rattles was uh, entertaining to me, anyway. <laughs> and did you like that Quark had to cut up his favorite jacket to make a diaper and had yeah. to keep changing the baby's butt? <laughs> uh, not as much. I thought that was a little ridiculous. I'm like, you have replicators, replicate a Pampers. Come on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he uses the replicator to create some kind of green baby food. Right. So he's got that much going for him. But, of course, the baby doesn't like it and spits it back in his face. So <laughs> I'm surprised I'm surprised uh, Quark didn't just take a bite out of him with those big Ferengi teeth. <laughs> that wouldn't be very nice. No, it wouldn't be, but... Yeah, so, again, this was a very light issue. Which brings us to, you know, who, who was the target audience? Yes. I mean, it felt very sitcomish, like like something you would see on Growing Pains or yeah. I'm trying to th- I'm trying to think of shows at that time, Full House or yeah. or whatever, you know, some light family-oriented sitcom. Right. Yeah, I agree. So, that's fine. You know, uh, the TV episodes themselves in all the series would have once in a great while a lighter episode. Sure. Which is fine as long as they pull it off properly. Right. Um, I just, you know, this was okay. I wouldn't say it worked incredibly for me, but yeah, yeah, it's fine. Right. Don't do this every week. <laughs> but you know what movie this 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 episode or this issue made me think of? What? Three men and a and baby. A baby. <laughs> Which is directed by uh, Leonard Nimoy, of course. Leonard Nimoy. Uh, and I understand he did that quite successfully. I never saw that movie myself. Oh, really? It was it was a good episode or a good movie? Uh, oh, was it good? I like yeah, it. Yeah, never never really saw it. He never he didn't have anything to do with the sequel, which was not as good. Yeah. Three well, uh, little lady. Oh right, right. Well, I, I think in Star Trek Four, he definitely showed he and the and the rest of the cast can do comedy. So. Right. I thought it was good. I thought it was good. Yeah. And definitely he did a dedicated comedy in uh, Three Men and a Baby, so that's cool. Yeah, he a, was good. A, tal- a talented man, Mr. Nimoy. Yes. And, and you know, he played Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> oh, he didn't play Bilbo Baggins. He sang it. Yeah, he did. An- he just belted little, that out there. Another little turn for comedy. Uh, <laughs> Whether yes. it was intentional comedy or not, it was exactly. It well, it, and when and just for the folks out there listening, um, all two of them, um, I never heard of that before. And when you send me sent me the link, the YouTube, I think it was a YouTube link that yeah. showed the video, which is basically uh, what was it? Uh, it was sixty eight, sixty seven, something like that. Yeah. Uh, it was while you know the Star Trek was still uh, in production, the original show, and there's Nimoy doing a song, a rock video, basically, about Bilbo Baggins. Amazing. 
It's the Hobbit. <laughs> and I never even heard of that before. And you pointed it out to me, so I just thought I'd mention that to the audience. If you haven't seen it already, do a search of that, take a look, and uh, it's just amazing. Yes, it's good. But all right, what else you got on this issue? Um, nothing really. Yeah, <laughs> it either. really isn't much to say. A lot of poop jokes, a lot of uh, you know normal baby humor. Right. Uh, and and the huge plot hole is he thinks that it's too late to call the police. Right. Uh, I don't think it's ever really too late to call the police. No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, and again, it's it's a space station. I mean, it's not right. like they've got. I mean, they may artificially dim the lights and stuff just to give people that feeling, but um, in reality, there is no day and night, so right. there's always somebody on duty. Yes. And then, out of all of them, I thought Miles O'Brien was by far the the worst. <laughs> the worst parent. I'm nah. just going to... I'm going to put her in a basket at my house where and just leave a note for my wife who's asleep. Who who just happens to be sleeping uh with your uh your 12-year-old daughter or however old she is? Oh no, she's like 4 or 5. Oh, is she 4 or 5 in this? Okay, yeah. well whatever. So yeah, it was I mean, uh, past napping age, I think, but whatever. <laughs> well, I think it was because it was uh, the middle he, of the night. And he's had a baby. Right, exactly. Well, he's the you know, he's the parent out of all of them, and he's the worst worst offender. Exactly. Cork took better care of the baby than he did. Right, and by the, and by the way, I thought this was morning. Yeah, they said they were taking a nap. You in the middle? Yeah, in yeah. So most of the action, once you get past the Quark thing, right. that was in that was the morning of the inspection, nope. right? Yep, you're right. You're right. Okay, okay. Make sure I got that right. Nope. All right, so uh, that, that's it. Anything? You said you had nothing? I got nothing, man. All right, then let's jump into our Elsewheres. Last episode, we talked about the issues, or I'm sorry, the episodes that came out in, was it May, June, and July, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And so, did we talk about the Maquis? I think we did, right? So the next, the first one we need to talk about is The Wire, which came out uh, at the beginning of May. Cool. This is one where Garrick, you know, he's the Cardassian on Deep Space Nine. Uh, he has a brain implant that uh, starts going haywire or whatever, and it starts endangering his life, which, you know, leads credit to that he's he's been a spy all along. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a good episode. Yeah, I don't remember that one that much. Yeah, but I, I do like the Garrick character, and I really like the actor too. I think he did a really good job with Garrick. I agree. Then the next episode that came out this month was called Crossover, which I think we might have talked about a little bit last last time. This was the Mirror Universe episode, first mm-hmm. one. Yep. Another good episode. Uh, man, these are sounding familiar. So I think we've talked. I thought I think we talked about them last issue, but last episode. The next one is the Collaborator, where the uh, the Elect a new Kai. Right. We talked about that last week, right? Um, last, so that I, I think we might have. Uh, or I jumped forward, because I know I mentioned about the final episode of that season, uh, the Gem Hadar. That's right. We did talk about it. All yeah. right. Well, then I'm going to just uh, quit talking. Because <laughs> I was like reading these going, man, these... These I sound very familiar. All right. Okay, so uh, then there was no new episodes that we haven't already talked about. 
Yeah, I think so. I think not. Okay. So, all right. So next week we'll be back. Uh, we're going to jump back into the IDW ongoing. So uh, I think that's what, issue 13, 14, and 15? That sound yes, that is correct, because I'm looking at them right now. Right. So yes, we and I have uh, looking forward to reading those. Mirror Universe episodes, issues. It's just going to be fun. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, how do you do? How do you deal with a mirror universe in a mirror universe? Well, yes, in a mirror. Well, ooh, that's an interesting way to look at it. I was thinking more of a rebooted universe, but yeah, I guess you could look at them as being kind of sort of different dimensions. Right. Yeah. So. I'm looking forward to reading it. So yes. uh, hopefully everybody will be back here next week and we'll all talk about it together. Excellent. All right. So until next week, I uh, hope everybody has a happy new year or had a happy new year and talk to you soon. Later, everybody. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.